This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is Amanda, and tonight I'm here with my guest co-host, Jean, who writes the recovery blog on Pickled. Hi, Jean. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for helping out. I really appreciate it. And tonight we are thrilled to have Ann Dowsett Johnston, author of Drinks, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, on our show. While women over the past few decades have been closing the gender gap in their professional and educational lives, they are achieving parity with men in rates of alcoholism with alarming momentum. In the United States, rates of alcoholism among women have risen more than 50% in the past decade. Johnston illuminates this startling epidemic, dissecting the psychological, social, and industry factors that have contributed to its rise and exploring its long-lasting impact on our society and individual lives. Drink is groundbreaking, groundbreaking for and every woman, whether she struggles with alcoholic or not, alcohol or not, should read this book. It's a very important book about women and our increasingly intimate relationship with alcohol. Winner of five National Magazine Awards, a Southern Fellowship, and the Atkinson Fellowship in Public Policy, and is a gifted author and public speaker. A respected advocate in public policy matters, she has a distinguished track record in shaping a broad variety of dynamic publications. 
As well, she's co-founder and co-chair of the National Roundtable on Girls, Women, and Alcohol, a pan-Canadian advocacy group launched in 2013. As a journalist, her most recent work was the Atkinson Fellow in Public Policy. She wrote a 14-part series on women and alcohol, appearing in the Toronto Star. At McLean's, she was best known for pioneering the magazine system of ranking Canadian universities, overseeing the best-selling annual McLean's Guide to Canadian Universities and the McLean's University Graduate Survey. As a columnist, feature writer, and speaker, she developed a strong leadership voice in educational policy and reinvestment. In 2006, she became vice principal of McGill University in charge of development, alumni relations, and strategic communication as well, and has written on a wide variety of subjects from the arts to mental health. And her personal writing was anthologized in Drop Threads 2, More of What We Aren't Told. Anne grew up in northern Ontario, rural South Africa, and Toronto. A graduate of Queen's University, she now lives in Toronto. Okay, and that's quite a background that you have there. And welcome to the Bubble Hour. We're so happy to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. I was thinking before we get into questions that we have about your book, Strength, maybe you could share a little bit about yourself so we could get to know you. I am a woman who just turned 60 and just celebrated five years in recovery. I had my last drink of wine on November the 3rd. 2008, and so I'm celebrated today with my son, who's 29 and lives in Los Angeles, and was home for the day, which was lovely, and I live as a writer with two dogs, two wire-haired dachshunds, and have, as you noted, just produced this book, which has come out all around the world. So I'm feeling very naked at the moment because it is a recovery memoir as well as a look at how we're closing the gender gap on risky drinking with men. So it's a, a labor of love and a labor of extreme nakedness. I tell my story and I tell it in as fulsome a fashion as I can. And it's a fabulous book for sure. And I just finished reading it and... I found that it really went beyond the usual memoirs of addiction and recovery, something you refer to as quit lit. I love that. Thank you. Thank um, you. It, it goes beyond your personal story, and you're very candid about your own story, but you also take a sweeping look at society and put into perspective the breadth and how large this epidemic of addiction is for women. But you mention in your book that it was a really difficult decision to, to write this book, and it took you several months to just muster the courage up to even propose an outline to your publisher. So what was it that finally convinced you to write Drink? I think as a storyteller, I felt so convinced that it was something that I needed to share. I had grown up in a household with an alcoholic mother who was cross-addicted to Valium, and we were never allowed to talk about what was wrong in our house. Things were very wrong in our house, and it was kept silent, and there was a presumption that other people didn't know. Of course, they did know, not the extent of to which things had gone wrong, but they did know that things weren't right in our house, and they grew increasingly not right. And I know that the one thing that distinguished my drinking is that when 
I got into trouble, not in my 20s or 30s or 40s, but my 50s is when my trouble evolved. I found myself making a promise to myself that I would not lie about it when my son confronted me and said that he had trouble with my wine consumption. I decided that I wouldn't negate his feelings, and the same with my partner. That was a really different behavior than in my household, as I said, when I was growing up, and we didn't talk about it and weren't allowed to talk about it. I would say that my, obviously, my drinking, or maybe not obviously, my drinking was very different from my mother's. I didn't miss, uh, I didn't spend the day in bed, I didn't crack up a car, I didn't get into trouble with the police. I was a very quiet and isolating drinker, and I was always a workaholic before I was an alcoholic. So my drinking looked different from my mom's. I was a very high-bottom, high-functioning drinker, and I luckily blew the whistle on myself before it got worse. Uh, I just, if I could jump in for a second, I was just curious because it, I, I can relate to that a lot with my father. My biological father was an alcoholic. And did that, did the fact that, did your mother's alcoholism delay your realizing that you had your own issues? Yes, I kept thinking that um, my drinking looked so different from hers. She was a cocktail drinker, and she was a very angry drinker, and she would rant all night and sleep in the day, and I I didn't use pills, and I didn't drink that way, and for a long time, I fooled myself that I was a, a social drinker that maybe drank more than others, so social drinker. I kept thinking I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. In your heart of hearts, in your heart of hearts. Yes. I wrestled yeah. with it. I kept all the drinking diaries that one does. I promise I, I will only do this. And then, of course, you don't keep the promise. But I'm high-functioning, award-winning writer. I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic as well. And yeah. that's a sentiment well, that, that I hear a lot from women that write into my blog. Um, I write a recovery blog. And I, I do hear a lot of women saying, I, don't, I, I can't be that because... I'm accomplishing all these things. But maybe you can set the stage for us a little bit in terms of this phenomenon of women that are accomplishing great things by day but are facing that second shift at the end of the day. And alcohol, as you describe it, is their steroid for high performance during the second shift. What is that second shift and why do we feel we need to lean on a crutch? I think that, in my case anyway, I was working at a news magazine for 30 years of my career. I was functioning at a high level for most of it and also raising a son and would race home with the groceries, always late, always feeling that I was late. I was late, Mm -hmm. coming home very tired, pour a glass of wine as I chop the vegetables and get ready for what was often a very full second shift, and that second shift included not only cooking and cleaning up from a meal, overseeing homework, but often returning to my own work while my son was doing homework so that we could, I could finish a piece that I might be writing or read some work. And if I didn't return to work, there was always a sense I should be returning to work. So I found that, that I just threw, I threw my shoulder to the wheel in a very real way. And although my mother had 
many hard years with alcohol and Valium. She set very high standards for us in terms of everything from writing thank you notes to being a good cook, etc. So I just found that I, there was this profound sense that I had to be perfect at everything, perfect at work, perfect like my father, perfect at home like my mother had been for a long time, and perfectly thin, always a problem for me. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And I just became increasingly burdened by a lot of it and found that that glass of wine would at least unhitch my shoulders from my earlobes where I'd be so tense. I think that many nights it was half a glass of wine or a glass of wine for years. But it is incremental. It does catch up with you. And as things became more complex in my life, certainly around empty nest syndrome. Once my son, I was really fine when the house was full and buoyant and he was a competitive rower and we were getting up early and it was all, he played the guitar, there was music in the house. It was when he left for university and it became very quiet in our home and he was gone out of town and I had menopause and depression, a very severe depression. And I was determined not to take antidepressants, so I was very, I was struggling. And another glass of wine or two seems like a a great idea. Mm -hmm. Mm. And obviously it wasn't because it's a depressant in and of itself, and it didn't help once I started antidepressants, and without getting too far off on that subject, I think that... It's important to underscore the fact that women do suffer 40% more depression than men do. And when people say, why do women drink? I think we drink because we can. There's a sense of entitlement. I think we drink because it is the modern women's steroid. I believe that. Then I think we drink to self-medicate loneliness and feelings of sadness and uh, depression, certainly, and anxiety, certainly. I, I think that's a really poignant picture that you paint, because I, I, I do believe it, that a, a lot of people experience that same thing and feel that they're alone, because you don't see in other people's kitchen. You don't know what other people are doing at home. So this picture emerges of women that are isolating and using alcohol to help cope with their stress, maybe to self-medicate, and are alone in their drinking. And yet, one thing you talk about is this marketing of alcohol that's targeted towards women and has a sort of a promise of girl time and fun. And tell us a little bit about the pinking of alcohol marketing and and how that fuels the problem for women. As the story goes, and it comes from David Jernigan at Johns Hopkins University, as the story goes in the middle of the 1990s, the alcohol spirits industry looked at the beer industry and said, oh my goodness, all our drinkers are dying out, beer is cleaning our clock, what are we going to do? And they invented the Alcopop, which has been nicknamed by David, cocktail with training wheels, girls, chicks beer, starter drink. And uh, the notion was to pull young women who don't like often the taste of beer to pull them towards the spirits industry and see if you could get those benefits for life and basically get a great marketing tool and get a lifetime user. And it was a gamble and it paid off. The Alcopot was an exceptionally successful um, product, still is, and but especially back then. 
And what happened was exactly what the spirits industry wanted to happen, which was that young women became vodka drinkers. They moved uh, away from Alka Pops as they grew into uh, college years, and they became vodka and tequila drinkers. And we saw the emergence and are still seeing the emergence of wines with names like Mummy Juice and Girls' Night Out and Cupcake and, yes, Happy Bitch, not nice, but this kind of name and Skinny Girl Vodka products that are definitely not aimed at men. We saw, we've seen that happen. So the very sad and scary thing, I think, is that when young men and women are playing drinking games on college campuses, he's drinking beer, she's drinking shots, she's two-thirds his size, she may not have eaten because it's a date, and we see the worst kind of almost experimenting with efficient drinking, very efficient drinking, pounding shots, as a female, and we know that alcohol is the number one day rape drug, so not a pretty picture, and had happened in earlier generations as women slowed down. They slowed down after universities in their 20s, and what's emerging now, which is alarming, is there is actually a spike, a spike in young women in their 20s and early 30s in terms of risky drinking, and this, of course, coincides with the sort of prime childbearing years. So really scary stuff, really a, a social experiment that paid off. And we now have a perfectly feminized drinking culture with purse-shaped Tetra Packs and all sorts of products that we all recognize as squishy, pretty, pink, and often very sweet. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Another difference you point out is that men and women tend to drink for very different purposes. Their intention is different often when they sit down to have a drink. Yeah, the research shows that, that men can be real risk takers when they drink, and they tend to be very social when they drink, go to a sports bar, drink with their friends. That's over time, if they develop alcohol problems, it may not be the same kind of friends as one would have had earlier in their lives, but that's the model, and the model for women is much more isolating. So. My risky drinking was classically I would have to drink what everybody else had to drink, and then I would go home and open a bottle of wine and have more after the party was over. In a way, hiding my drinking, trying to make sure, very sure that nobody knew about it. And almost a ritualistic element to the drinking, hiding from other people what I did and enjoying drinking alone. And that's just really risky behavior. 
I think the other element is we drink to numb. People will say to me, how do I know if I've got a drinking problem? I say, do you drink to enjoy yourself and relax? And can you put it down if you choose to put it down? Or are you drinking to numb, to forget, to not be yourself? So these are really essential questions that one needs to ask oneself. And, of course, we need to all be aware about low-risk drinking guidelines. If you have not burned your, pri- burned your privilege to drink, as I have, you need to be really aware of low-risk drinking guidelines. And low-risk drinking guidelines for women are you know, 10 drinks or fewer a week and never rarely more than two on any one occasion. That's just not a model that our society, we live in a very alcogenic society, that's just not a model that anyone is in, a, in the habit of, or many people are not in the habit of following those guidelines. For a lot of people, 10 drinks seems, if you're drinking two drinks a day, 10 is too few. Yeah, I certainly um, know the I first know. time I heard those guidelines, I thought they were impossible. I kept writing a chart thinking, who does that? Who does that? And it's one of those things where when they first came out, people would say on a Saturday night I might have a drink before dinner and then I'll have a couple at dinner and then who knows I might have one after. And you do do the math. It's not hard to get to 10 if you are drinking in a way that many women are drinking. Mm And certainly we see culturally, we see book clubs, which are often have wine girls weekends away, often quite a bit of wine consumed. It, it doesn't, you don't have to go very far to scratch the surface and see people nodding around this subject. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, absolutely not. And two glasses of wine, that was a given. And mm-hmm. for me, I know, and walking in the door, you say to, to de-stress, it was the first thing I did, pour myself a glass of wine. Just, and, but it seemed normal. It's what everyone else was doing. But I think they might have stopped after a glass or two, and I didn't. Right. And, and I, I was very much a social drinker. I actually prided myself that I drank the, like the guys. But then I also, but then I did... I would be out drinking socially and come home and pour myself a glass of wine as well because I needed that to go to sleep. It's, it's amazing how it, it can just it sneak up on you. And it's the two, two drinks a day or ten drinks a week was what I told my doctor I had. <laughs> but it's not, it wasn't a reality in my life, that's for sure. No, and we um, all know that doctors just double whatever we tell them, so probably smart. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> So when it, when it comes to stigma is a big issue, I, I find, in getting people to ask for help. And do you, do you think there are different stigmas for women versus men when it comes to alcoholic drinking? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that there is. I think that I was at an addiction conference earlier today, and there's no doubt that people tend to believe that men can drink and not lose their masculinity, be the bon vivant, or here I'm just having a great time, being generous. Women are sloppy. Women are seen as sloppy. They're really scorned for drinking too much, I think. Now, I was speaking to an addiction counselor who happened to be male, and he thought, Exactly in the reverse. He said, I think men look like fools when they drink too much and women can look attractive. I don't think culturally that we look at it that way. I think that we are very hard. Obviously, this pecking order will make sense to you. That I think we're hard on women who drink too much. I think we're 
harder on women who are mothers who drink too much, and obviously we're hardest on women who are pregnant and drink too much. We live in a culture where it's just not done. It's not seen to be done. It's not approved. And so if you are a woman like myself who got into trouble with alcohol, it's the kind of thing where when I was writing my series for the Atkinson on women and alcohol a couple of years ago, my and this is in the book, my editor said to me, are you going to tell your personal story? She happened to know about it, and I said, I'd like to. I think it would add some context to the, to the series. And she said, one question, do you ever have to work again? And I said, yes, I do. She said, you can't tell your story. And she may have been right. I'm now very naked with this book out there, but and there's no taking back my story. I, I very purposely told my story, and I'm proud to do it. But I'm also well aware that the stigma is large and alive and well. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what will happen to me. I'm not sure about the backlash. I think I've already seen some backlash. The book has been very well received, and people have been very generous about it, but Some people are uncomfortable with the fact that I'm discussing alcohol. It's not done. There's a certain generation of boys that's just not done. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Alcoholism has been recognized as a disease, and it's still, as you say in your book, it's still considered a disputed ailment. Do you think that this culture of perfectionism combined with the stigma that surrounds women and drinking drives women into the shadows? Oh, I definitely do think it has to, and I think that it's a very um, touchy subject because staying in the shadows can be comfortable. Staying in the shadows can also be extremely dangerous because it means you don't get help. I remember when I was first in trouble with alcohol, I had a very high-profile job, and I I went to see an addiction doctor, and he said, you can't possibly go to a meeting. People will recognize you. And I think that, I think it's one of the reasons why I've decided to come out with my story. I just, I think if Certain leaders, like Bill Wilson, were alive today, they might say, they might look at things differently. I would encourage everybody to see the film Anonymous People. I don't know if you've seen it. 
but it's very oh, about important. five times. <laughs> it's about five times. Very important film, yeah. I think, in terms of getting a five times. It was very cute. In terms of get, ha, helping us understand where it is we should be going, we have an opportunity, I believe, right now to be real leaders for the next generation of people who are challenged the way I certainly was challenged. We can do it differently, and we can certainly do it a lot differently than my mom's generation where there was just so much horrible shame and difficulty and social shunning. She lost her friends. She lost everything. I think that there are many other ways that we can frame this for young people. I notice, in which one thing I think is really remarkable and exciting, is that young people really rock sobriety. They love it. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. there is just an energy and a wonderful sense of, hey, I've got this thing in my life that's making me happy and making me strong and there's this I, I, I notice less shame and I think that's wonderful that's really exciting opening up the dialogue really starts with conversations like this and your courage in, in being willing to tell your story and to put it forward in a book is the thin edge of the wedge in the recovery advocacy movement I think you're going to encourage a lot of people with it, I know when I walked into my local bookstore and saw your book right there at the front counter, I was so excited because I know that two years ago when I was searching for answers, I would have been really excited to, to see a book right there. <laughs> so well, thank you. And we know that a lot of listeners to the Bubble Hour are people who are considering making a change. They're not in recovery yet. They're in that research mode. So... Uh, there, we know we have folks listening that are at that stage, and if you could speak directly to someone who is in that position, what would be your words to any listener, perhaps women in particular, that are concerned about their drinking? I guess I'd say a couple of things. When I was going through trouble and really wrestling for a long time about whether my drinking had to stop or could I moderate it, whatever, I carried around drinking a love story, Carolyn Knapp's memoir. And I'm hoping when I wrote my book proposal for this book, my aim was to have a book that people would carry around in the same way, that when they were wrestling with whether they had a drinking problem or not. There was a friend in a book, and I have certainly, I'm I'm receiving multiple letters of fan mail a a day, and almost always this story goes like this. I read your book. I've been worried about my drinking for some time. This is how I drink. I'm thinking I'm going to give it up, or I'm thinking I'm going to scale back. So what would I say? I would say have a conversation with yourself and know this, that if you promise yourself that you will drink X number of drinks tonight, one, let's say one or two or none, and you can't keep that promise and that is repeatedly your behavior, you probably have a problem with alcohol. If you are drinking to numb and not just to have be pleasantly uh, relaxed but rather to numb or overly relaxed, then uh, you probably have a problem. People do know, I think, in their heart of hearts when they do have a problem. It's a very progressive disease. It's very hard to give up. It's very hard to go through recovery. If you think you can moderate it, 
please do for yourself and save yourself a lot of heartache because it is very difficult to go through recovery. The other end of it is like a miracle. I think mm-hmm. you become, you find yourself again, but it, it's a long road back. And if you could avoid that heartache, I think you, you wouldn't wish it on your best friend. I don't think we can emerge on the other side of recovery and flourish in ways we never dreamt. It can be a crucible, incredible crucible, and it was for me and has been for me. It is a tough thing to go through. Mm-hmm. It's a tough thing to go through. So I would say, be good to yourself. I would say, is it a substitute for self-care? Be careful, nurture yourself. And on a, a much larger scale, because I'm older, I would say to women, to younger women, learn to say no. Not no, I will never do this, but maybe not now. We're all in a hurry. We're in such a hurry. We want that great job. We want to raise those babies. We want great marriages. We want to be our very best always, sometimes jamming everything into your life. All at the same time, like one more cherry into the Christmas cake is not a good idea. And no does not, it can mean not now. It can mean later. But certainly one of my downfalls was trying to jam everything in repeatedly year after year. A big speaking career, a big professional career trying to raise a son with all the attention that that I wanted to give him. And it was too much. It was too much. And I used alcohol in a way that was dangerous because I used it to Mm de-stress. And I think that's, I think you say that in a room full of women, and if they're honest, they'll be nodding. Yeah. My head's nodding, isn't it? I can hear it. (laughs) And I think it's one of the more, most taboo things to say. I'll tell you... uh, an interesting story, which I've been weighing for a few minutes, whether I should share it or not, but I'll share it. And it's just that I was blessed because I had a couple of book launches, really lovely parties for my book coming out. And the first one I gave, and it was a lot of friends, and it was about 200 people, and it was really joyful. And the second one was given by a very senior professional colleague who decided to be generous and invite some people, and 12 people on that list phoned and said they didn't think they could come and hear about a book that was about alcohol. We we don't know how taboo some of these conversations are and how difficult they are for people to have. Some people believe, look, this is my last pleasure. I work really hard. I come home from work. I don't want to hear bad news about it. I don't want to hear, don't tell me bad news. I don't want to hear bad news about my drink, my nightly drink. That's the last thing I want to hear. And I think we know that. Mm -hmm. I think we know that it's taboo. And I think that all the more reason why we have to speak up. We are walking into really uncharted territory in terms of being vocal, being female on, on this subject. And... Yeah, it deserves such a conversation because when you fall through the cracks, you really fall. And I think it's important that people understand, too, when we have these conversations, it doesn't mean that we're saying that you have a drinking problem and that you need to stop. We are talking about talking to people that do have a drinking problem 
and so that they know that it's okay to get help, that they need to get help. And I'm the same as you, Anne. I don't, if someone wants to drink, more power to you. And if it ends up not working out for you, I'm here for you. And that's really, that's the message I want to give. I don't want to say, hey, I think everyone should stop drinking because, hey, if you can and you don't have a problem, more power to you. Just, I, you know, I, I kind of wish I didn't have a problem except for I found this amazing life in recovery that I would don't really ever have a desire to drink again because it's, mm-hmm. my life is amazing today. And one other thing you mentioned, too, is you talked about if you're using alcohol for self-care, one thing I never, and, and also the concept of saying no, when I was drinking, and even before drinking was a problem for me, I never, because I was so ambitious and thought I needed to do everything to prove that I was this amazing woman that could take on the world, that I never said no, and I, um, I, I, I never said no to anything, and I didn't practice any type of self-care, and <clears throat> in recovery, I've learned to practice self-care. I've learned to do things to um, take care of myself that just don't involve alcohol. It's really that mm-hmm. simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a much better life. And I think it takes, it takes some conscious effort to, as you say, turn your life around and, and practice self-care. It takes, it takes some standing up to yourself <laughs> and time and carving out and creating new habits. There's a lot of new habit forming to do when you're in new recovery, and and or the first few years of recovery. There's a lot of new habits that have to be formed, and it's it's exciting, but it can be difficult. It, as you say, Anne, in the book, it, we quit drinking thinking we just need to stop the drinking, and that's the only change that we need to make. <laughs> and then over time, we realize it. That's just a one piece of the puzzle, and there's just a whole lot else that has to be addressed in all other aspects of our life that contribute to that need we have for that comfort. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's challenging. You talk as well a bit about the idea of recovery being, and our attitudes towards drinking, we could see that as being an empowering choice rather than being a weakness, but be empowered by recovery. And, And how can women really work all of us together to help promote recovery as a measure of empowerment rather than a sign of weakness? That's a great question. I think we live in such an addictive culture, and so I think we can live with imagination and with resolve to to honor ourselves. I think our culture will allow us and encourage us to overextend ourselves, to find ourselves we're playing beat the clock all the time. And with all due respect to Cheryl Sandberg telling everyone to lean in, frankly, I did lean in. I leaned in hard for my whole life, working hard. And I'm sure um, many people listening to this have as well. I think in our culture, we have to promote compassion to ourselves and compassion for others. We need to remember to love, and most of all, and the things that's been the most transforming for me in sobriety is to be grateful. We are very hungry. We're a very hungry society, and I think we just need to pause and enjoy our lives and remember to do, remember to love one another. It sounds so hokey, but truly it's very difficult to 
manage family and work and achieving. And a lot of us have been handed Blackberries or iPhones and don't shut off and don't say goodnight properly and don't approach our mornings with perhaps some quiet where I start my day every day with a gratitude list and the, the most phenomenal part of it has been to switch to be grateful for the things that are difficult for me. I try to be grateful at least for one or two things that are challenging, a challenge that can be teaching me something. And I try and work a little chemistry on approaching my life in sobriety that way. So I think recovery can be an adventure. I think it is an adventure, and I think it can be, obviously, it is recovery of a whole lot of self and of a new self, a new emerging self. So I think there's a lot to commend it, and there's a lot to commend a life that involves less alcohol. All right, everybody, this is where we leave off for this shorter version of this conversation. But the episode does continue for another 30 minutes, and you can hear that if you join us over on Patreon, where we have the extended versions ad-free of all of our shows. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for walking this walk with us. We're glad you're here. Sober is a great way to live. And if it's something you aspire to, keep going. It's worth the effort. If you are walking this walk, please know you're not alone. We thank you for being here. Until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine when you say, I did that, and I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, I You don't have to shout it out on Main Street. Just want to be free.